Well, good morning. We are in the middle of a series through the Gospel of Mark. We've called that series Servant and Savior, and we are all the way to chapter 10, uh, in the middle of chapter 10 today, uh, beginning in verse 35. I'm calling this particular message, Improving Your Serve. And uh, I read a, a great little story about a mother. She was making some pancakes for her two young sons, Kevin and Ryan. And the boys, as they might uh, do, as, as brothers might do, they begin to argue about who would get the first pancake. And not wanting to miss a teachable moment, the mom said, if Jesus were sitting here, he would say, let my brother have the first pancake. And so Kevin turned to his younger brother, Ryan, and said, okay, Ryan, you be Jesus. Isn't that right? <laughs> And you know, that's, that's cute, but if, if we're honest, most of us are more like Kevin. Our default is selfishness. You be Jesus. I'll eat the pancakes. And we want to talk a little bit about that today. In order to improve our serve, we follow the example of our coach, of our mentor, of our leader, Jesus. And so in our text today from Mark chapter 10, we're going to take a look at four attitudes that we can hold or pursue if we would choose to serve Jesus and his kingdom. You remember that last week we learned along with those early disciples that many things in life can keep us from pursuing that one thing that is really important. But apparently the disciples uh, didn't quite grasp what Jesus was trying to stress about having that singular passion for his way. And instead, like we often do, they focused on their own way. And so we're going to pick things up in verse 35 of chapter 10. I want you to see what two of the disciples do. And it says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever you ask, we ask of you. That, that's quite a request, isn't it? Over the Christmas break, my grandkids were, were here staying with us, and one day my, my youngest granddaughter, she came up and said, Grampy, say yes. <laughs> say yes. And you know what, it, what it's getting at. She wanted me to do something, to say yes, before I knew what it was that I was saying yes about. And being a good grandpa, I said yes. Of course I said yes. I leave it up to the parents to say no. But, uh, you know, it, it didn't take long for these disciples to move from being amazed at Jesus' words to having kind of an attitude of arrogance. Give us whatever we want. From moving from being emotional to feeling somewhat entitled. And this isn't the first time that the followers of Christ get all caught up in who's the best or the brightest or the first or the favorite. Right after Jesus made his very first prediction of his upcoming suffering, you might remember that Peter argued with Jesus. And then after Jesus the second time made a prediction of his suffering and his sacrifice, that was back in chapter 9, the disciples began to argue among themselves. And Jesus called them out by saying, hey, what are you guys talking about back there? And if you remember this passage, and it's on the screen here in verse 34, but they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. 
Is there a bit of entitlement there, a bit of arrogance? As Jesus talks about himself dying, and they spend time arguing about who's the greatest. They never really did seem to figure it out, the importance of servanthood that Jesus wanted to instill in him while he was alive. In fact, if you know this story, at the Last Supper, the night before Jesus was to die, unbelievably, we read these words in Luke chapter 22, a dispute also rose among them, among the disciples, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Oh my goodness, thick skulls. And so as we get into our text today, I think we're going to see, though, that we are more often more like those first followers than we might care to admit. If we want to live differently than the disciples did, we have to, to strive to incorporate these four attitudes and actions into our life. So let's, look, let's take a look at these. Number one, monitor our motives. Monitor our motives. In, in Matthew's account of this very same uh, passage that we're looking at in Mark today, in Matthew 20, uh, verses 20 and 21, we see a bit of a fuller picture of what's going on. And, and even though these two guys are called the sons of Zebedee, we could say they're actually mama's boys. They really are. <laughs> kind of functioning like a helicopter parent. Mom is there with them. And mom appeals to Jesus on their behalf. Look at this. Then the mothers of the sons of Zebedee, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to, to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left hand in your kingdom. Now, their mother was a relative of Jesus, likely related to Jesus' mom, Mary. And so, I don't know, maybe James and John thought she'd be able to be able to pull some strings for them, family strings. Mom, go talk to Jesus for us. And so now when we come back to, to Mark's account, amazingly, what is it these guys ask for? They ask for a blank check from Jesus. Look at verse 35. Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Whatever we ask. Jesus, we want you to say yes before you even know what we're going to ask you. They're, they're treating Jesus kind of like a, a genie who's going to grant their wishes. Is that the Jesus that we serve? No, it is not. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. And at this point, these guys didn't quite get it. But before we get too hard on, on the guys here, don't we often do the same thing, folks? Don't we? When we are demanding towards the Lord, when our prayer times are often dominate, dominated by a list of the, the things that we want accomplished, the things that we want removed from our life, kind of like a laundry list, a checklist. Jesus, do this for me, and this for me, and this for me, and this for me. Amen. And we're kind of like James and John saying, Jesus, do whatever we ask. There's even a theology that's popular in our American culture that promotes a name-it-and-claim-it philosophy. If you just declare what you want, God will make it so. But instead of saying to our Savior, we want you to do whatever, whatever we ask of you, we ought to be praying something more like this. We want to do for you, Lord, whatever you ask of me. Isn't that a better prayer to ask? In verse 36, Jesus asked these two guys to put their requests into words. 
And I think maybe he does it to kind of reveal their own self-centeredness, their own selfishness. And so Jesus says to them, what do you want me to do for you? What is it you want, guys? And apparently they've rehearsed their answer. They're ready for this because they'll jump right in. And they say to him, grant us to sit one on your right hand, one on your right hand, one on your left hand. You know, to sit in their culture on the right hand, that's the highest position of honor. To sit on the left would be the the second highest, next to the the host or the leader. And so they're asking for a position of privilege and honor above everybody else. But their method is askew because their motives are not in order, are they? I love how commentator Warren Wearsby puts it. He says, Jesus spoke about a cross, but they were interested in a crown. What's in it for me, Jesus And it can be really easy to get our motives out of whack, can't it? James and John wanted proximity to Jesus. They wanted position. They wanted power. They wanted prominence. Those are all things that we desire as well. They wanted to be the closest to Jesus. and They wanted to be higher than anyone else. And their mother desired the best for her kids. And all three of them. What is it they wanted? They wanted things done their way, in their time. And friends, if we want to improve our serve, we have to first learn to monitor our motives. Have have you noticed how difficult it is to have pure motivation? If we're serving in order to receive accolades, or to feel better about ourselves, or to, to make sure that others know that we're serving, then our our methods are likely out of alignment. As best as we can, we need to get our reason for serving straightened out. Let's not be people that serve to impress others. Let's remember that we don't have to serve God in order to gain his favor. You know, our world says actions speak louder than words, and there's some truth to that, but really, what's, what's more in line with God's word is this. Motives speak louder than actions and words. Motives flow out of our heart. And Jesus is always about our heart motivation. I found another quote by uh, author Paul Miller that I think really clarified this situation for me. Uh, He says, the great struggle of my life is not trying to discern God's will. It's trying to discern and then disown my own will. And that's a continual struggle in our life. When faced with their mixed up motives, Jesus asked the two disciples that question. He wants to to reveal what they're really thinking. What do you want from me, guys? What do you want me to do for you? And a truthful answer to that same question can help us as we think about what are my motives? What is it I really want Jesus to do for me? Here's a few more questions that we could kind of use as a self-check as we're kind of monitoring our own motives. What is it I want? What is it I want? Why? Why am I doing this? Who am I serving in this particular situation? Who do I want to impress? Am I doing this for God's glory or for my own good? And as we kind of do that self-check, that's how we monitor our motives, to make sure that we're staying in line with God's way, as we talked about last way, and not just 
the way, the nice way, the comfortable way, the easy way. We want to go God's way. Well, the next thing that we want to do after we measure our motives is we want to pursue this idea of preparing for problems. Prepare for problems. So after these two disciples make this pretty brash request, Jesus responds pretty bluntly in verse 38. He says to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? In effect, what Jesus is saying here to James and John is, you guys don't have a clue what you're asking to sit at my left, to sit at my right. You are clueless. Jesus uses this word, the cup. And, and the ancient Jewish people, for them, the, the cup was a symbol of suffering or affliction. And to drink from the cup means to take something deep inside. You might remember that just before his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, in that lap. immersed in intense suffering. Do I have to hold this now? Okay. <laughs> so Jesus is about to be immersed in full, intense suffering. And he says to the guys, you don't know what you're asking for. And then on top of all the physical pain, all that Jesus was about to endure, he is about to be fully submerged into the undiluted wrath of his holy and righteous Father as he takes on the sins of the entire world on his shoulders. And the guys are saying, we want to be a part of that. And they don't know what they're asking for. It's interesting to me also that Jesus uses the, the same two words that we use in the church for important demonstrations of our faith, the cup and baptism. When we are baptized, what happens? We fully participate or identify with the sacrifice and death of Jesus. Paul teaches all about this in Romans chapter 6. That's why here at Garden Way Church, we teach that, that baptism is not just a nice optional add-on to our faith in Christ. It's not just a, a quaint ceremony. Baptism is at the heart of our conversion of fully following Jesus as we unite with him in his sacrificial death for us. And then additionally, we observe the Lord's Supper regularly because the cup is representative of the precious blood of Jesus. As followers of Christ, there is nothing more powerful, more important for us to reflect on, to be reminded of on a regular basis. And so as we are unified with Christ and reminded of his sacrifice, we are more fully prepared to face the problems of this world that we live in. 
Now, unbelievably, both James and John answer this pretty pointed question from Jesus with complete confidence. In verse 39, what do they say? We are able. Yeah, Jesus, we're right there with you. We're able. I think they're a bit too eager, don't you, in their response? I think Jesus reinforces this when he says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. They wanted glory, but Jesus is really telling them to get ready for some hardship, to prepare for some problems. Now, we don't always know, do we, in advance, how much our problems are going to affect us how we're going to suffer. But what we do know, if we are serious about following Christ and serving him wholeheartedly, is that we will face difficulty. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul reminds us by, by this verse. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. You know, James and John here, James, he didn't suffer very long. He lost his life. He was the very first of the 12 to be martyred. You can read about that in Acts chapter 12. And then his brother John, John lived much longer than any of the other early disciples. He lived to be about 95 years old. But his life was filled with difficulty, culminating with his banishment to the island of Patmos late in his life. James was executed. John was exiled. Later on, they come to understand what it meant to drink of the cup and to be baptized with the baptism. And friends, if we are serious about serving, then we must be ready to suffer. I know that's not a, a popular phrase or a popular idea, but we have to be ready to suffer. We might be taken home early like James, or we may live to a ripe old age like John. But to drink of the cup, it has reference not only to suffering, but it refers to remaining faithful to the end. The phrase in the first century was understood to mean to drain the entire cup, to drink of the cup, to drain it until it was empty. Now, you can't beat kingdom service in Jesus' kingdom, but it won't always be easy. And we do a disservice by promising to others that the Christian life will be simple and trouble-free. It costs us to serve Jesus. The question is, are we willing to pay the price? Monitor our motives. Prepare for problems. And then next we see that we are called to elevate others first. Elevate others first. Let's take a look at how the other 10 disciples felt when they saw that James and John were trying to grab those power positions. Look at verse 41. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. What's going on here? I, I bet, first of all, I bet Peter must have been really torqued here. I mean, he's part of the inner circle. It's him and James and John. And here are these, his two buddies are doing an end run trying to get to Jesus first. And he's the one that's considered to be the leader, the spokesman. The word indignant is a very specific word, and it means to be greatly afflicted and sorely vexed. We could say they were pretty fired up, couldn't you? These 10 guys, when they see what's going on with James and John. The others were, were probably... 
seeing that these two guys were trying to use their mommy to get some special treatment. And they didn't want to give up those top spots without a fight. I don't think they were taken aback by, by James and John's lack of theological understanding of true servanthood. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think they were ticked off that James and John got to Jesus first to ask that question. The spiritual attitude of the ten really wasn't any better than that of those two guys, James and John. And, and that just reminds me of this. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to be angry at the sin of others while we indulge in some of the same sin in our own life? You know, we want justice for those guys. Get them, God. But we love mercy for ourselves, right? The amazing grace that we love. Yeah. It's easy to see it in others. Why is it that we so easily condemn sin in others that we would excuse in our own lives? You know, when a spirit of competition and jealousy enters into a, a relationship or into a, a fellowship like a church, there's always fallout and retaliation. A, a desire to get ahead often leads to others being left behind. Selfishness is always resulting in dissension. And so when we think only of ourselves, the community breaks down. And the unity that belongs in that relationship or in that fellowship is replaced with division, with backbiting. That's why I love what Jesus does next here in the first part of verse 42. It says, Jesus called them to him. And you know, that's exactly what needs to happen when there's tension and strife in your life, in my life, in your relationship, in the life of the church. When things aren't going well, we need to come to Jesus. We need to come to Jesus together. When Jesus calls the guys to himself, he does so, I think, with some tenderness and with some familiarity. I kind of picture it kind of like a football huddle. And he's saying something like, guys, come on, huddle up. Form a tight circle right here. Get a little closer so you can hear me, hear what I'm about to say. He's got something he wants to pass on to them. He knows them. He knows their default systems are set on selfishness. He knows us too. And he knows at our root that we're selfish as well. That's why he calls them together. Notice he doesn't take the two brothers aside and blast them away. Nor does he take the ten aside and, and scold them for being indignant at the other two. He simply brings them all back into community. And then he gives them a lesson about how differently things are to run in his kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is upside down. It's different than the kingdoms of this world. And so Jesus reminds them that there is a sharp contrast between the servanthood philosophy of the Savior and the world system that they and we are so accustomed to. Look at verse 42 as it continues. You know, Jesus says, that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. You see, the world's way teaches that we should spend all of our energy to get to the top, to climb the ladder, to achieve, to succeed, and then when we get there, we've made it, right? And guess what? We also get to boss others around. How cool is that? 
But what Jesus reminds them and what he reminds us is that seeking power was a Gentile or a pagan practice. He was, in essence, telling them that they shouldn't operate in that realm of thinking. Rabbis in the first century like Jesus often used Gentile illustrations as negative examples for their students. I found this example from history. The German Kaiser was one of the most recognized figures of World War I. And after he died, his chief valet said this of him. I cannot deny that my master was vain. He had to be the central figure in everything. If we went to a christening, he wanted to be the baby. If we went to a wedding, he wanted to be the bride. If we went to a funeral, he wanted to be the corpse. What a sad way to be remembered. Because he was so self-centered, he wanted to be the center of everything, even when it had nothing to do with him. And so it's so important for us to make corrections when we find that we have that similar desire creeping up in our heart to be first, to be in the position of prominence, to be in the position where others look up to us. Verse 45 begins with a kind of a rebuke as Jesus reframes their understanding. Notice what he says. But it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. You see, a Christ follower, Jesus says, should not operate this way. Literally, Jesus says, it must not be. In the family of God, there is only one category of people. Servants. We are all servants. Notice the rest of this verse and into verse 44. Jesus goes on, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Well, this was a, a countercultural and radical teaching from Jesus to divine success in terms of servanthood made no sense from their thinking of their time. Isn't it, isn't it refreshing when you see someone famous not be selfish and self-centered? It is kind of refreshing, isn't it? Just a, a few years ago, right after his team won the World Series, Fortune magazine named Theo Epstein, who was the president of baseball operations for the Chicago Cubs, they, they, they put him on the front of Fortune magazine. He was called the world's greatest leader. The world's greatest leader. He came in two spots ahead of the Pope. That's pretty high standing, isn't it, for a, a baseball guy? Well, later, when Mr. Epstein was asked about what he thought of this great honor, he said, uh, I can't even get my dogs to stop peeing in the house. <laughs> the whole thing is patently ridiculous. It's baseball, a pastime involving a lot of chance. If one pitch is three inches farther off the plate, I'm on the hot seat for a failed five-year plan. And I'm not even the best leader in our organization. Our players are. So here's a guy that had reached the pinnacle. And he says, I'm not the greatest leader. It's not about me. The word, that servant, the word servant that Jesus uses here is the word used for a table waiter. All right, the person that comes and serves you your meal. And the word slave refers to those who are owned by another. 
in complete subservience to the wishes and demands of the owner. Wow, that's pretty humbling, isn't it? I read a story this week about a pastor in Sierra Leone who found an incredibly rare 706-carat diamond. 706 carats. And for a while, he was the wealthiest person in his nation until he made the selfless decision to give the diamond to the country's government in hopes that they would use it to improve the lives of all of the citizens. Listen to his words. He said, I believe this best can be used for all the people, especially at a time when our country is undergoing some great economic challenges, stated the pastor. By the way, that diamond was valued at $62 million. He gave it up. If the disciples wanted to be leaders in Jesus' kingdom, they first had to learn to elevate others. What is a servant? A servant is someone whose heart is intent upon and whose will is bound to the will and the well-being of another. You know, there's a, a lot of difference between being a servant and a volunteer. We, we use the word volunteer in, in church all the time, and it, I, I'm just going to make a pledge. From, from here on out, I'm going to try and avoid using that word. Because listen to the difference between a servant and a volunteer. A volunteer picks and chooses when and even whether to serve. A servant serves no matter what. A volunteer serves when it's convenient. A servant serves out of commitment. The servant does what he's told when he's told to do it. The volunteer does what he wants to when he feels like doing it. And so friends, Jesus doesn't recruit us to be volunteers in his kingdom. He redeemed us so that we can be Servants, And so here's the principle. If we want to be truly great, then within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must regularly give up our personal rights in order to elevate others. Jesus is saying something like this. Consider everyone else is someone to be served. Consider, consider everyone as someone to be served. And consider everyone else to be your master. You think, oh, that's kind of kind of scary, isn't it? I'm going to give up a lot. But imagine what would happen if all of us did that. We're all serving one another all the time. We have to take opportunities to serve because, folks, we are obligated to serve. Remember that the, the true test of whether we're a servant is to consider how we respond when we're treated as one. Do we respond with joy? Or do we respond with anger, with resentment, with bitterness? Well, there's one more attitude that we need to possess as we seek to improve our serve, and that is to embrace the example of Jesus. And really, what he does is he shows us how to do the rest of this, how to monitor our motives, how to prepare for problems, how to elevate others. How do we do that? Well, Jesus just offers himself up as the perfect role model. Look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We could say that this verse really is the summary of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is servant 
and Savior. He's servant and Savior. He served the needs of others and then demonstrated the ultimate act of servanthood when he gave his life as a payment for our sins so that we can be set free. And now he calls us to embrace his example. I want you to key in on that word ransom. That's a very specific word. And it was the price for redeeming or freeing slaves or prisoners. Now, thankfully, we no longer have slavery in our country, but it certainly is a part of our history. A number of years ago, Sue and I visited Charleston, South Carolina. And I remember visiting the slave market there. It's been restored and kept. And it literally is a room maybe close to the size of this room. And there's something like a stage built out in the center. There's a balcony where people would sit. And around the sides are cells, jail cells. And slaves would be led out and placed on that platform and chained there. And people in the balcony would bid to purchase those slaves, to take them home, to force them into slavery. That was not a ransom. That was a purchase. But what Jesus does for us is he ransoms us. The image of the word ransom is of the slave being offered on the mar- in the marketplace and someone paying the full price, not to purchase them though as a slave, but specifically to set them free. That is the meaning of the word here, to release or to set free. And so this idea of Jesus ransoming us leads to this central Central truth. Apart from Christ, guess what? We are all hostages. We are all enslaved to the power of sin. That's why we end up in addictions and in pettiness and in bitterness and in selfishness. We're enslaved to our past and we're dead in our sins and it's not a pretty picture. But God came to us in Jesus to rescue us to perform a rescue operation. Jesus came to break the bonds of sin, to set us free from its power and from the penalties. And when Jesus died on the cross, he broke the old way. And what did he do? He offered us freedom, freedom to pursue intimacy with God, freedom to pursue wholeness, spiritual healthiness in our life, and freedom, freedom to pursue the abundant life that Jesus wants for us. During World War II, some American soldiers were being held in a German prison camp. They were hostages without hope. Every day, some of their buddies died or lost hope and heart. No one was coming to rescue them. But then somehow, someone managed to smuggle in a shortwave radio. And one day... The prisoners heard that the Allied forces had broken through and that for all practical purposes, the war was over. The Allies had won the war. The soldiers had a deliverer. Any day now, freedom would be assured. And as a matter of fact, freedom had already started for them, even though they were still in the prison camp. Well, in the same way, those who trust in Jesus... Those who believe in him have been set free by Christ. 
They've heard the news of salvation. They've believed the good news. They've been immersed into Jesus, into his plan and his purpose. And now they are enjoying the liberation from slavery and bondage to sin and death. And so friends, every time, Every time we embrace the example of Jesus and we engage in small acts of service, in small ways of servanthood, we are participating in the grand story of Jesus to set people free from bondage. If we don't keep that one story in front of our eyes and in our hearts, then we will get bogged down in our small and petty and pathetic complaining lives seeking after power and glory, which was exactly what happened with those early disciples. Monitor our motives. Prepare for problems. Elevate others and embrace the example of Jesus. And you know what? That just might mean letting someone else have the first pancake. So I ask you, who's willing to be like Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father God, we are so thankful. Thankful for this message of truth and of grace and of hope and of power and of freedom. And Lord, when we are pulled back into our pettiness in our past, Father, we thank you that if we are in Christ, that we have his, your Holy Spirit with us to help us to rise above ourself and our selfish desires. Lord, help us to continually make the corrections that we need to as we serve you faithfully. And Father, thank you for the hope we have because of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to take a few moments right now to share together in the cup and in the bread this beautiful meal that Jesus so wisely left for us. Because he knew our memories were short. He knew that we easily drift back into self and selfishness. And so what did he do? He gave us a simple meal, the bread and the cup that represent his body and his shed blood. And each time that we share together in this meal, we're reminded of these powerful truths of who we are in Christ, of what he paid so that we could be in Christ. And we're reminded of the great hope and future we have because we are in Christ. So I'm going to invite you to come as the music plays. There's four tables, two here at the front, two at the back. You can simply make your way to one of the tables. The, the bread and cup are there. I invite you, you can stay at the table and, and take the cup and the bread. You can take it back to your seat if you want to have a few moments of quietness, however you'd like to do that. But we just encourage you to make this a meditative, worshipful time as we remember Jesus together. If you have trouble getting to one of the tables, just simply